I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations in the name of the Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day in the Lord's neighborhood. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Here's my coffee. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host. And if you'll notice with the banner here that uh, we're in Numbers 1, that we didn't finish Leviticus. We stopped at Leviticus chapter 14. And I'm going to explain why that is. From the beginning of Genesis through Exodus and through up through chapter fourteen, uh, Leviticus, uh, we're we're here we're reading the story of Israel. Uh, first, how the nation is born as a children of promise of Abraham. They go into slavery. They come out of slavery of Egypt. Pharaoh's destroyed. They're on Mount Sinai, and they're uh, getting ready to start their march into or going to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And then the writer takes a pause in Leviticus right around 14, and for the vast majority of Leviticus, he is just, uh, it takes a pause from the narrative and the flow of the story to explain the rules, how God expects his people to live, I mean, nitty-gritty details. Um, And I hit that spot and was like hitting a brick wall. I don't, I just, I, I read ahead and... I just, oh, Lord, there's not much there devotionally for me because it's describing a lifestyle that is no longer extant, that's no longer, much of which is no longer uh, in process, if you will. And I just didn't see the value in it for me. I, I mean, there's value in God's word. Don't get me wrong. Everything is right. Everything is good. And it's there for our instruction. But I asked God that I said, I don't see how this is going to be of value to me right now in my devotional life. And I just felt permission from God to just (laughs) move on. Let's get back into the story of Israel and keep the story moving forward. And that's why we're starting in the book of Numbers, because now God's given them the law. God's given them their instructions about how he wants them to live in the nitty-gritty details uh, in Leviticus. And now We're getting ready to set forth to begin our march to Canaan. So, having said that, Numbers chapter 1, let's take a look at it. Now, as an introduction, I wrote down some things that I went out and read uh, and found some information, and I'm fascinated by it. And here's a really neat statement. Getting the people out of slavery was one matter. But getting the slavery out of the people would be quite another. Uh, sometimes people who are uh, 
immersed in a certain lifestyle, when called out of that lifestyle and something else, it's hard to leave that old lifestyle behind, the old habits, the ingrained habits, the way of thinking, the way of acting, the way of moving. It's hard to leave that behind. And that's what he's talking about here. Getting the slavery out of the people would be quite another. In short, the book of Numbers is about life with God during the journey to the destination of his promises, a journey that we as God's people are still undertaking. You stop and think about it. As slaves in Egypt, much of what they needed to live day to day was given them, was provided to them by Egypt. And now they're in a place where they get to make the call. They get to make decisions that were many times made for them. And sometimes that's really hard for people to do. And we're, so this, this generation has a really, really hard task in front of them to set aside their uh, former way of thinking. And that's kind of what Numbers is going to be dealing with here. The book begins 13 months after the Exodus. Israel had spent the previous year in the region of Mount Sinai, receiving the law, erecting the tabernacle, becoming a people. Now they are going to be mustered as a military force. And that's what this first chapter is about. And formed into a cohesive nation to provide the basis for an orderly march. Now the events of Numbers cover a period of 38 years, 9 or 10 months. That is the period of Israel's desert wanderings. The second month in Hebrew calendar, which is when this narrative begins, corresponds roughly to our April. Now, Numbers graphically illustrates what happens when people sin. This is the overall message of Numbers. But it also exemplifies hope for those who desire God's mercy and want to experience his faithfulness. The book of Numbers reveals a God of devastating wrath who also holds his arms wide open for those who repent of their sin and turn to him. Within this book, you'll find the Israelites' repeated cycles of sin, judgment, and repentance. You'll see not only human failure, but God's patient and merciful response. This book shows the lengths to which God goes to love and rescue his people. We're going to discover that God's people, Israel, is going to continually rebel and disobey. But God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his people. And even in the midst of their disobedience and rebellion, he provides a way. He is merciful. He stays faithful to his part of the covenant. Now, the more common name, Hebrew name for numbers is Bemidbar. <laughs> I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But it means primarily in the desert. The story of numbers is a story of Israel in the desert on their way to Canaan. Here's another thought. God's wrath will, all, will also extend to his children. His wrath was displayed against Egypt, yes. But he will his wrath will be extended to his children if necessary. As a father, he is faithful to his children, and punishment and discipline is part of that relationship. Anybody who's listening who is a father understands sometimes that discipline and wrath is necessary to bring your children back into line to where they're supposed to be to what you expect of them, to what is their inheritance. It's sometimes we as fathers have to make some very hard decisions concerning our children. Numbers is a story of how the original generation is punished by not seeing the fruition of the reason God delivered them. That is, he delivered them so he could bring them to the land of promise, Canaan. Moses himself was not exempt from God's discipline or punishment. 
We're going to see that in this book as well. So, having said that, let's read chapter one. The Lord spoke to Moses. Oh, one of the other names for this book is, I'm not a way at Debar. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. It means, and he spoke, and the Lord spoke. We see that over 150 times, I believe, in this book. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai in the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Eleazar, son of Shedur. From Simeon, Shelemiel, son of Zerushaddai. From Judah, Neshan, son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathaniel, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishama, son of Amehud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedezer. I apologize for these names. If I have Jewish friends that are listening to this, I'm doing my best. From Benjamin, Abidan, son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahizar, son of Amashadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Deol. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men, whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name one by one as the Lord commanded Moses, and so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. From the descendants of Reuben, the first son of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name one by one according to the records of the clans and families as the number from the tribe of Simeon was 59,300. From the descendants of Gad, skip down here to the number, the number from the tribe of Gad was 45,650. From the descendants of Judah, the number of the, from the tribe of Judah was 74,600. From the descendants of Issachar, the number from the tribe of Issachar was 54,400. From the descendants of Zebulun, the number from the tribe of Zebulun was 57,400. From the sons of Joseph, the number from the tribe of Ephraim was 40,500. From the descendants of Manasseh, was 32,200. From the descendants of Benjamin, the number from the tribe of Benjamin was 35,400. From the descendants of Dan, the number from the tribe of Dan was 62,700. From the descendants of Asher, the number from the tribe of Asher was 41,500. From the descendants of Naphtali, 
The number from the tribe of Naphtali was 53,400. These were the men, counted by Moses and Aaron, and the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, twenty years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army, were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. Now, the large number of men conscripted by this army, for this army, suggests a population for the entire community in excess of two million, counting women and children. Exodus 1.7 describes a remarkable growth of the Hebrew people in Egypt during the 400-year sojourn. They had become so numerous that they were regarded as a grave threat to the security of Egypt. Now, there are some people that don't believe that there was this many people in the migration out of Egypt. Um, and there are some, there is some discussion uh, as to, in the Hebrew language, what the numbers actually meant numerically. But the truth of the matter is this. There were so many Israelites that Egypt was threatened by them in Egypt. And that's truth. And I, I'm sticking with these numbers because uh, these numbers jive up with other uh, accounts in other parts of the scripture. This was a huge amount of people. Now, how in the world they would be able to be provided for in the wilderness, water and food, well, we're going to see that. We know that it would be no easy task to feed this many people. Um, so it would be, uh, this would be a huge, huge thing, a huge migration. So we're just going to continue on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept the numbers as they are and realizing that our God is totally capable of providing for his people. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. Now, the ancestral tribe of the Levites, remember, that's the tribe that's missing here, was not counted along with the others. The Lord has said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. So instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. Whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it will be put to death. The Israelites are, set, are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall in the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. So the Levites, from which yeah, the priests came and, and those who weren't priests who were of the tribe of Levi, they were actually the manual labor that took care of the tabernacle and its furnishings and moving it. Um, they camped around the tabernacle to keep, make sure that people from Israel who were non-priests or non-Levites wouldn't come in on the tabernacle and thus incur the wrath of God. This is kind of like a picture of why us Christians are in this world right now. You know, Paul, uh, Peter says that uh, we are sojourners uh, in, a, um, in a land that's not ours. That's kind of what Israel's at right here, right now. The land they're passing through is not their own land. They are foreigners in a strange land. And when they first entered Canaan, they were foreigners in a strange land. So 
the and then when you have the Levites camping around the tabernacle to keep the non-priests, non-Levites from being killed, it's like they're a preservative. They're keeping Israel from suffering the wrath of God. Well, us believers in this world, we're kind of like that because we're here, because we have because we are we stand between the non-believers and the presence of God, right? We're a protection. The reason God has not totally thrown his, his complete wrath on this world is because he still has his people here. God will not pour out his wrath on the people of Israel as long as the Levites stay stand between them and Israel. You could take that too far, I'm sure, that analogy too far. But I see, I see a re, one of the reasons that we believers are here is that it holds back the wrath of God and all mankind who are incredibly disobedient and rebellious and who are enemies of God. Now, there's specific instructions here that only the Levites could be the caretakers of the tabernacle. And only the Levites could set it up, tear it down. Only the Levites could minister in the tabernacle. It's, if anybody else were to attempt or to try to do this, they would be killed by God. Now, is there something so mysterious about setting up and tearing down the tabernacle that only Levites can do it? No. Is there something so hard about offering sacrifices or like the priests do, um, ministering in the, there's nothing inherently difficult in any of these tasks that makes them so skill uh, dependent that only this small group of people can deal with it. No, there's nothing inherently hard or difficult about the tasks that the Levites and the priests have to do, right? But God has chosen in his sovereignty to set aside this group of people for these things. Now, we've talked before about uh, when we're in Leviticus and, uh, and Exodus, how the tabernacle and all things associated with the tabernacle are a picture of the true uh, of the true tabernacle and how the sacrifices depict different facets of Christ's sacrifice. Well, if we look at the priests and the Levites and their tasks um, and how that God set them apart for these special things that he has them doing, is it because Reuben, tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Issachar and those guys couldn't do these things? No, they can do these things. But God has set aside these tasks in his, in his sovereignty specifically for Levites and the priests, right? So if anybody outside of that group of people were to try to do those things, they would be killed. Well, we have that same kind of situation existing on the Day of Judgment. There are, there's a group of people that are doing, that are trying to do Christian-type things, ministry-type things, and they are not Christians. They are not true believers. In Matthew chapter 7, 
Jesus is talking, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there are groups of people who are, who are attempting to do Christian type things. And I don't think it's a mistake here that the ministry Christian type things you're talking about are the ones that are showy and out front, you know, Prophesying involves you standing up in front of people and saying, thus saith the Lord, um, driving out demons, performing miracles. That, that puts the person who's driving out demons and performing miracles in the center, a very visible center of activity. I don't think it's any surprise that some many people are attracted to the attention-grabbing, quote-unquote, ministries of the church, prophecy, driving out demons and performing miracles. Um, I'm not surprised. But just because you're doing these Christian type things doesn't mean you're part of the family of God. Now, I, I'm confused about why an unbeliever could pull off that kind of stuff. Don't know. I don't know if they're charlatans. I don't know if they're fakes. Or I don't know if there's some laws in the kingdom of God that, that allows it to happen. I don't know. But I know this. The basis of being part of the family of God is based on relationship. He says, I never knew you. So God, when God assigns tasks to his church, to his people, to his believers, to his followers, he's very serious about it. The only Levites and priests could do what they did around the tabernacle. If anybody else were to try to do it, they would incur the wrath of God. In today's walk, in today's world, we believers are given tasks. We believers are given assignments. And the truth is, only believers can do these assignments. Anybody else who tries to do them will incur the wrath of God. Sometimes immediately, sometimes down the road. These people didn't incur the wrath of God until the day of judgment. We prophesied in your name. We drove out demons, performed miracles. He says, but I never knew you. That's the important message here. God in his sovereignty has assigned tasks and has assigned assignments. And his people are required to perform them. Years ago, when I became a Christian, um, I got it in my head that God was going to that God was calling me to be a pastor or maybe a, what we would call minister music back then, worship leaders now, worship pastors. And time and time again, God shut those doors on me. That was, that was not his assignment to me. That was not the task he was given to me. And I would consider myself in this picture of the tribe of Levi. The pastors, deacons, overseers, elders, in this picture, I would consider them to be the priests who minister and and uh, um, order things and, and administer the tasks that God has given them in the body of Christ. Uh, I consider myself as a, a support player now. I realize that God has called me to be, I guess, a Levite. I 
have responsibilities in the church, but I'm not a leader in the church, not in the sense of a pastor, a deacon, or an overseer, elder is. I know my place. I know what God has called me to be. Now, in my family, I am a pastor. I'm an overseer. But in the church, organizational church, I'm not. I have tasks that he's assigned me, and I'm working to pursue completing those tasks. For me to step outside of that and try to do something that I'm not called to do or be is only inviting trouble. So that's the opening section here of, uh, of Numbers. And that's the overall message that we're going to be seeing again and again and again when Israel steps outside of what God, the boundaries that God has set, it only invites trouble. And as we go on, I'll share some stories about my personal troubles. But the opening message of this first chapter, God has a specific design in mind for the church, just like he did for Israel. He has a specific design in mind for you and for me as his followers. It behooves us to find out what those assignments are, where we fit in the body of Christ. Sometimes that's an ongoing thing. It took me years to realize that I was not going to be a pastor. I was not going to be a worship pastor or a minister of music. I am a Levite. I'm one of the worker bees. I'm okay with that. All right, that's where we'll leave it tomorrow, Numbers chapter 2. Here's my coffee, folks. I'm Paige, and I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.